I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are dealing with the topic of general revelation with Dr. Robert K. Johnston, Senior Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary and the author of God's Wider Presence, Reconsidering General Revelation. Dr. Robert Johnston, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here with you. Thanks. Okay, so first let's start off. What is your uh, basic definition of revelation? Revelation has to do with epistemology. It has to do with how we know God. It's uh, the uh, process by which God reveals himself to us. And that revelation takes uh, two forms, general and special. Think of uh, Psalm 19. It's probably as good an example as as there is. Um, The first six verses of Psalm 19 talk about that wordless speech. That's one form of revelation. And then it moves to talking about Scripture. Um, A second form of God's revelation. And it ends... Interestingly, by saying, may the words of my mouth and the murmurings, not meditations, the murmurings of my heart, the wordless speech and my words, may they echo, may they be consistent with God, who's my rock. Uh, Maybe that's even based in the murmurings, the, the foundation of God's presence and my Redeemer, what the special revelation of God shows. So we have God's revelation coming in several forms, but what makes it revelation is that God is speaking. All right, and you uh, before talked about uh, Catholic theologian Avery Dulles and how he distinguishes between discovery and revelation. Could you say more about yeah, that? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting Um, reflection that he has. He says both of those words actually come from the same etymology, and it's often very difficult to distinguish between discovery and revelation. But you could say revelation is what is revealed to us, which, which you could say comes from above. Discovery is what we do, is what it comes from below. So revelation has to do with God's inbreaking into our everyday lives in a number of ways. Discovery has to do with what we understand as we look around. Um, Why I talked about in in my book, um, rethinking general revelation, is that often general revelation is defined as what everybody, every place can discover by their own effort. I don't think that's revelation. That's discovery. Revelation has to do with what some people sometimes experience, which fills them with awe, wonder, humility, direction, They know something about God, even if it's a murmuring, and it causes them to be speechless, just as they've received received that speechless word. 
So you mentioned special revelation and general revelation. Could you go into more detail um, and give examples of each and uh, particularly what, what, what is it the core of special revelation? Sure. It, it, they aren't one-to-one, but most uh, biblical scholars recognize there are multiple theologies within Scripture. So that there is the, the sort of major arc, redemption, creation, fall, redemption. Uh, and, and that's what the uh, liturgy is based on. That's what the uh, preaching calendar is based on. Um, that's the major storyline. But um, God's mighty acts never fit very well with the book of Proverbs. doesn't fit very well with the book of Job. It doesn't fit very well with the book of Ecclesiastes, which you could say are based in creation theology. Same God. You don't want to say God the Redeemer and God the Creator are different, but they're different aspects or they're different ways epistemologically that God reveals himself. And so the book of Proverbs is an example of, um, of of general revelation, though it has been recognized as revelation that it now functions in the Bible as special revelation. If you want a particular example of that, in Proverbs 30 and Proverbs 31, you have the poetic uh, words of Lemuel, as told by his mother, King Lemuel. Well, we know all the names of the kings of both Israel and Judah, and Lemuel is not one of them. That was actually quite um, troublesome to early Jewish scholars. Some of them said, well, Lemuel must be a nickname for Solomon. (laughs) Well, nice try. uh, How do you? how do you refute that except there's absolutely no evidence anywhere? You know, I mean, we can, we can call John, our son, um, Harry, if we want, but, but there's no evidence that that's really what was going on. Or again, it, in Proverbs 30, it's the words of Augur, A-G-U-R. That's not a Hebrew name. Now, that's really interesting that here the poetic, the artistic insights as somebody outside of Israel looked at life from God, and those were recognized to be occasions in which the Israelites heard God. And therefore they were put in that collection of Proverbs along with Proverbs from Solomon and from Hezekiah's men and so on. So that even in in Proverbs, we have examples of revelation seemingly coming not from the redemption line, but from the creation line that have been recognized to be the inspired word of God. Special revelation has to do with all of that redemptive line. Um, A 
Ecclesiastes is an interesting text because the book of Ecclesiastes until the last paragraph has absolutely nothing to do with redemption history. It's all based in creation. Some say, well, it has to do with life under the sun with God not present. No, God is in every paragraph almost in Ecclesiastes. Absolutely present. And the writer of Ecclesiastes over and over says, you can't make your life meaningful by your own effort, but enjoy the gift of life from God while you can, because it is from God. And then in the very last paragraph, an editor who has put it all together says, and remember, this is similar to the commandments. And he brings it that back then to redemption, to, to special revelation. But, but that's not where the book is, is grounded or rooted. The, the, the book is grounded in what you can hear from God, what you can know from God as you humbly sit before him, even as his special revelation is absent. Now, that's why a lot of times Ecclesiastes has been thought of as the last book that needs Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, it it cries out for a completion from special revelation. But one shouldn't uh, disparage the, the precious, fragile revelation that the writer uncovers. And that's why for thousands of years, Ecclesiastes has been a fascinating book that Christians and non-Christians have read and been helped by. Um, it, It somehow is scratching at a truth that's fundamental. So maybe I could say one other thing. If Christians believe that wherever truth, beauty, and goodness is present, it comes from God. And that's what Christians have said ever from the beginning. Then it shouldn't surprise us if where there's truth, beauty, or goodness, somehow we might discover God in that mix. Because, in fact, God is its author. Good, good. So um, you've already made a lot of hints um, towards this already, but um, how would you sum up why is general revelation so important? Well, there's probably a couple reasons. Um, Let me give an analogy. I know my wife well. We've been married 30 years. Uh, We intimately know each other. But I love to hear stories about when Kathy was an 11th grader on the tennis team from her old tennis coach. Does that make my knowledge of her um, different? Well, yeah. I actually continue to to know more of of the breadth and depth of my wife, as I experience her 
directly and indirectly from others and so on. In a similar way, that speechless speech often grounds, deepens, extends, um, contextualizes our Savior, our God that we know most fully in Jesus who came to redeem us. So that it's not a substitute for, but it's also not um, nothing that somehow we can avoid. Uh, There's a very, I don't know if you read um, C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy. It's actually a wonderful book. It's his autobiography in which Lewis talks about experiences of general revelation that he had as a kid. When his mother read to him Squirrel Nutkin, when he smelled a currant bush in his garden, when he read as a college student Hippolytus, when he listened to Wagner, um, there were a number of these occasional experiences that seemed to be more real than reality, that, 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 that ushered him into the presence of something other. He said it was, it was too close. It was on this side of your focal length. You, it was like a murmuring, not because it was distant, but because it was overpowering. It was too close. It was present to you. And he said that eventually led him to the conclusion that there must be a God. There was no other way to understand those murmurings. And he did an investigation, as you remember. And he decided intellectually that Christianity made the most sense of those major religions. If God, if there was a God, surely God would have revealed himself in, to human beings in some way. And so he looked at the major religions and he chose Christianity. And he said, I was the most reluctant Christian in all, or convert in all of Christianity. Um, he had not really liked the sort of uh, stained glass windows and schmaltzy art and so on of, of the Christianity of his day. After he became a Christian, he then knew God intimately through special revelation. And so he ends the book, I think, with a huge mistake theologically. He tells the story, the um, parable, of being lost in the woods. And when you find a signpost that leads you out of the woods, you look at it and you are appreciative and it's wonderful. But once you know your way, he says, you can forget about the signposts. You don't need them. Hmm. Oh, I, I want to say, no, all of those hints and, and, and murmurings and, and experiences of the presence of God only add richness and depth to your relationship with God. I once had a um, discussion with another professor who thought that these murmurings were of no account. 
And I said to that professor, do you ever sit in a car overlooking the lake with the moon shimmering on the water with your wife next to you? And there's magic and there's connection between you and your wife. I said, if you don't, I, I feel sorry for you. I mean, that's, those are wonderful revelatory moments that cement and deepen your affection and your relationship. But they're wordless speech. However, they're, they're not simply signposts that once you know her and talk to her, you don't need anymore. No, 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 no. You, you, you value those. They enrich, they enliven, they, they deepen. And that's what general revelation can continue to do for the believer. There's a second major benefit. That is all of us, or almost all of us, can remember occasional moments like Lewis remembered when God was present in everyday life. You didn't necessarily know it was God, but, but it was something foundational, something that caused awe and wonder, something that caused you to stop in your tracks. If we say to those outside the church, I'm not interested in that. That's, that's really just a trace or an echo. It's of no account. Let me tell you about Jesus. Hmm. They say to us, you don't want to hear my story. I don't want to hear your story. And we close off what could be the beginning of meaningful dialogue in which we listen to another story, thank them for that reflection of their experience of the transcendent. And then like Paul in Acts 17 say, let me tell you my experience. And, and that you're off and running in a way in which there's connection. So, so both for discipleship reasons and for evangelism reasons, I think general revelation has been um, unfortunately neglected by many in the church, particularly the evangelical half of the church. And it's, in, it's, it's hurt us in both of those areas. It's hurt us both in our spiritual growth, our spiritual formation, and it's hurt us in our witness. So if you look up general revelation in the average uh, reference book, um, there's some common themes you'll find. Um, but you're critical of those sort of discussions, those sort of ways of presenting general revelation. So what is um, your critique of those ways of thinking? The, the main critique is it's not revelation. So that it becomes a, a, a different form of natural theology. Or at best, there's, there's a sort of begrudging admission, 
that it might be a trace or an echo. But an echo isn't really even hearing the voice. It's only hearing the echo of a voice. Um, so that I, I want to say that the experience that everyone has everywhere, based in hints in creation, is discovery. It's not revelation. On the other hand, most all of us recognize that there are numinous or transcendent, you can use a variety of words, experiences that people have, both in Christianity and Judaism and in all religions and in no religion, in which um, their life is altered for the better, in which the fruit of the Spirit is manifest, in which humility is an outgrowth in which awe and wonder remain such that 20 years later they remember the experience. It's not an experience of pride. It's not an experience that they control. It's an experience that's recognized as a gift, as like the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about. That's exactly what he talks about those six or eight times where he criticizes our attempt to produce meaning and then says instead, recognize the gift from God of of life. Enjoy your food and drink. Uh, Let your clothes be white. Let oil not be lacking in your head. Work with all your might because it's a gift from God. And most of us at some point in our lives can remember when we experience life as a gift. And that's something we can build on. That's wonderful. And that's not what most discussion about general revelation is. It, It often is just a setup for saying we're all sinners needing to be saved. Right. I see that a lot. We all are sinners needing to be saved. But that's not... But there's another aspect of general revelation where... You could call it a theology of everyday life, um, where God is present in our midst, and and we recognize that. All right. So would you say there's an overarching theology of revelation throughout Scripture, or multiple theologies? Or how do you see that? Well, I think there's, that obviously, Scripture is mainly about the acts of God for our redemption. It's about salvation history. So that's not necessarily where all the New Testament studies centered today in the era of Von Rott and so on. That's It was even talked about in those ways. But that's the, that's the through line of Scripture. But if you ask the question, is God also present outside the church, and without direct reference to salvation or to Christ, the answer is yes, he's often there. So Abimelech, do you know who he is? Remember Abimelech? Absolutely. Genesis. Uh, Abraham comes to Abimelech. Uh, He is scared to death 
that Abimelech is going to um, take him hostage or somehow hurt him. So he says to his wife, don't say we're married. Basically lie. Terrible thing for our Saint Abraham to do because it basically should have meant the rape of Sarah by King Abimelech, who took her into his harem, except he has a dream. And in that dream, God says to him, don't sleep with her. You're going to be in trouble. And Abimelech goes to Abram the next day and says, why did you lie to me? And, but he, he, he's forgiving. He, he basically still gives Abraham cattle and property and, and says, go in peace. Now, we don't think dreams can be the revelation of God. Dreams often are the context for revelation in the Old Testament. Can, can God speak to us through dreams today? A lot of people think so. They will have those dreams that change their lives. Or think of uh, Balaam. Balaam actually never gave up his belief in another God. He never converted. He was a false prophet. Balaam heard God speak to him and responded accordingly saying, no, I'm not going to curse Israel. I'll be in trouble. Um, Balaam heard God outside the church and without reference to salvation. Um, Paul talks about uh, rain and the seasons as he's he's preaching to... uh, um, but to Lystra um, and, and says, you can know the God that you know because of nature. Let me tell you about this God. Um, Paul talks about the philosophers um, on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, in which he basically says, good for you. You recognize that this is a sacred world and that you might not know all there is to know about God. There might be a mystery beyond what you can describe, and you have a temple to an unknown God. That's great. Then he says, no, it's not great. They're idols. But it's great that you understand that there is a God out there. Let me tell you about that God. I can tell you more because of Jesus who was raised from the dead. Now, some exegetes have said about Acts, Paul was just pulling their leg. He didn't really want to compliment them. But that was just a a throwaway to sort of grab their attention. Mm. There's no evidence of that within the text. Paul is speaking to a group of people with no background in Judaism. 
He can't appeal to the prophets. He can't appeal to the Exodus event. So he appeals to a creation theology. And then he builds on that and talks about Jesus. So there's a, there's a, a I could give other examples, but there's a variety of examples. Maybe one of the interesting ones is King Necho. Have you ever heard of King Necho? I do remember the story with Josiah. Well, you're one of one in a hundred. When I preach or teach, if there's one in 50 that recognize that name, it's amazing. And they can't say much about it. Necho was a pharaoh who came to Josiah. The story is not in Kings, but it is in Chronicles. Josiah was a good king, a very good king. Josiah, you could say, was steeped in special revelation. Um, Josiah cleansed the temple. Josiah reinstituted the reading of the Torah once a year. Josiah started the Passover celebrations again. Josiah consulted the prophet Huldah. He had 30 years of special discipleship training. And when he died, Jeremiah wrote a lament in his honor. Everyone mourned. He he was recognized as one of the great kings of Israel. But interestingly, in Chronicles, it tells the story of Necho coming to Josiah and saying to Josiah, God has told me to tell you to let me through your country. I'm going to go defeat the Assyrians. Josiah, rightly, thinks, who is he to tell me about God? I know God. He doesn't. He worships a false god. He's pulling my leg. He's, there's something up his sleeve. So Josiah puts on armor, goes out to fight to save his country. And the Egyptian archers shoot an arrow through his heart and kill him. And the text says, because Josiah did not listen to the voice of God through King Necho. Hmm. Wow. So the text doesn't let you even have a different interpretation. It, it simply says God spoke to Necho. Necho spoke to Josiah. And because Josiah didn't believe him, he died. So once you start at now, I've never heard, except me, I've never heard anybody preach on King Necho. I'm an old man. I would have thought that that was theologically startling enough. It's significant. Significant enough that that we would have heard that discussed. But general revelation, as you have intimated, um, really gets very little traction or at least until recently. I I think maybe with our younger generation who are increasingly suspicious of 
the institutional church. The reflection on how God might be present in truth, beauty, and goodness, how God might be present in the wider world, has taken on an increased significance, um, both for our children and for those outside the church. So how do you go about constructing your own um, theology of general revelation, and how do you specifically tie that to pneumatology? Carl Bartis claimed to have said at one point, the theologian has a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other. Or my colleague, uh, Bill Dernis, uh rephrases that and says theology has to do with telling our stories and hearing God's story and putting them together. That's why um, we preach new sermons. We don't just read the sermons of Luther or Calvin. We live in a a different context. There's a a new story, a new newspaper, or I'm a, a clergy person in the Evangelical Covenant Church. And one of our great preachers was Paul Reese, who then became a a leading trainer and statesman in World Vision. Paul Reese talked about the act of preaching as taking the Bible and walking up and down Main Street. Hmm. So that at its core, theology is under the authority of Scripture, trying to put it in engagement with our lives, with our experience. Now, theologians recognized early on that it isn't just my individual experience, but it's your experience and others' experience, the experience of people in other cultures, so that you not only have experience, but you have the wider culture, both science and the arts, as a resource in thinking theologically. And even though scripture is our norming norm, even though scripture is our authority, we always read scripture in a context of of the teachings of the church, our local church, who corrects us and helps us see what's there, and the church through the ages. Uh, It's the height of arrogance to think that I somehow can read scripture better than Teresa of Avila or John Calvin, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King. We we need those multiple witnesses to help us so that the theological task is the task of hearing the spirit speak, of receiving that revelation that comes in multiple ways, through multiple sources and resources, even if we say we have no creed but the Bible, we listen to that pastor and we take notes and we basically follow that pastor. Or, you know, we we, we all do it. It's not bad. Um, So the theological task of general revelation is listening to those experiences we have had and that others have had 
and then putting that into conversation with Scripture as to what it might teach us and the church as to what it has experienced. So a C.S. Lewis and his reflection on general revelation can help me better understand my experience. And so the theological task is that messy, circular conversation under the authority of Scripture in which we let experience and culture and church and tradition all be resources for the Spirit speaking to us. Um, Another way of talking about it that maybe makes sense to the your listeners or hearers, um, we talk about Scripture's inspiration. We also talk about Scripture's illumination. We know that even though Scripture is inspired, without the illumination of the Spirit, it falls on deaf ears. Mm-hmm. It, it actually is often misinterpreted. Um, I think that we have moved beyond sort of high modernism where we thought we could argue people into a faith. Josh McDowell's a wonderful, saintly guy, but evidence that demands a verdict is probably just mistaken. Evidence that suggests a verdict, maybe, but but it's much more complicated than it just here, 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 and by golly, it got to be here. Eh, that's not how the spirit works. Hmm. That's how we understand God. Actually, my understanding, McDowell has absolutely incredible. He's on a campus crusade salary, crew salary, hasn't made much. Every penny from his books, and he's sold millions, has gone into research and evangelism. And even 10, 15 years ago, he recognized that his approach was only effective with one or two percent of the population. Hmm. It, 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 it simply isn't how we think, respond, react. So that the theological task is hearing God and confirming that, and then looking for those places where um, the sources don't match up. So for me, I looked at my experience and I looked at scripture and then I looked at the tradition and I said, I don't really gain much from much of the tradition as it talks about general revelation. It seems to be more about discovery. It it seems to be not about the spirit speaking through creation, but just the spirit, but just creation. And, and, And so there was tension there. And that caused me to write the book where there's tension. You, you then need new theological construction to, to deal with the differences. It might be, we've misunderstood scripture. It might be that scripture needs to be reaffirmed, but that's that complicated ongoing theological task. So one of the more controversial, um, places where general revelation can take place is through other religions. Uh, could you address that, and especially for 
our more fundamentalist brothers and sisters who would be especially skeptical about that? Oh, sure. If Revelation is about epistemology, not ontology, if Revelation is about knowing God, it might be apropodeutic, it might be on the way to salvation, but it, it's not about salvation. So that the basic mistake of most discussion in general revelation is it is put within the context of salvation. And there's a fear that somehow general revelation becomes a natural theology in which you can know God apart from Jesus. And, and we're all climbing the mountain from different paths and you know, so on. A, a complete relativism. Right. That's not what we're talking about here. That general revelation has to do with how the spirit is present in life, how the spirit is present in culture. So that the spirit, we have the witness of people experiencing God in the shower. A philosopher, I can tell you about that if you want, but all of a sudden, a sense of peace, a sense of fullness, a sense of God's presence pervading that space. We have God's speaking through music, through all of culture. Religion is another form of culture. It also would seem to make sense that something with staying power of thousands of years has something that's right about it, as well as things that are mistaken. So that I'm not saying that somehow it's okay if you're a Hindu and you never need to be a Christian. No, 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 no. But could it be that some of what Hindus have experienced and talk about is rooted in the spirit of life who is in and through all truth, beauty, and goodness. And that's why it has compelling power. Now, it, as with Acts 17, it's been misunderstood. So we now worship idols. We, 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 we've gone in a, a, a false direction with some of it. But that basic instinct that of the transcendent, might well be God-given. In fact, that's what the definition of revelation is. And so I'm quite open to letting my evangelism include asking the Hindu or the Muslim, tell me about your experience of God, and thanking that person for those experiences, for that witness, and then saying, would you like to hear mine? And all of a sudden, because there's been an openness, then in fact, you have the opportunity to share that special revelation. You might well begin with general revelation. I might begin with my experience of God through watching a film. Um, so that there's there's some sharing of of encounter um, 
But but that will then move on. Um, so I'm not scared of other religions. I just want to be sure that we're not confusing revelation with redemption. Those right. are different categories. Right, right. Okay, you've already made a few references to natural theology. Could you define that and then tell us what that has to do with general revelation? Natural theology has been defined in four or five different ways. Um, multiple books, shelves in the library on that. Um, natural theology can be what you can what you can know about God by your own reason. It's a misunderstanding of Aquinas. Um, better to talk about natural revelation. Maybe then you're you're talking about how God might reveal himself in through creation theology. Um, but if natural theology is that which we can know by our own effort, then that's um, mistaken. If natural theology is a way of talking about the first six verses of Psalm 19, then we want to affirm it and say wonderful and build on it. They're, they're overlapping words. Common grace would be another one that's in there. I mean, so that various traditions have tried to recognize God's presence in life. And that uh, provenient grace is another. So, you know, whether you're a Catholic or you're Reformed or you're Wesleyan, you, everybody has, a, has recognized that God also shows up out there. And so in that sense, I'm with them. <laughs> but many of those terms can have a certain limitation or even a mistake. And natural theology, at least in its crudest form, is, uh, is simply trying to do theology without God. And obviously that isn't going to get you very far. All right. So moving closer towards your specialty, um, let's dive in uh, just a little bit to music and how that can function um, in, in relation to general revelation. Well, I... I want to say that music... I'm not an expert on music, so that's what I want to first say. But that if we think of the church, we have recognized all the way back to Old Testament times the special place for music as ushering into ushering us into the presence of God. One of the mistakes in our current American church context is sometimes calling the first 25 minutes of our Sunday morning worship service, worship mm. and music, and then the next 35 or 40 minutes teaching or something else. No, 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 no. The whole thing is worship. But there is a, 
a um, truth in that, in that music has a compelling possibility to usher in that wordless speech in which it allows us to enter, to, to bracket ourselves and to hear the spirit speak to us from beyond us. Literature has some of those same possibilities, but it does it by focusing us on another's story. So by, 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 by focusing our lens, by, by, by pushing us to see more deeply, we sometimes are able to hear the Spirit speak. When I was a freshman at Stanford, I took a course in theology and literature from Robert McFee Brown, a Presbyterian minister. Yeah. The first year he took the course, he taught the course, there were 17 people. The second year he taught the course, there were 573 people that took the class. There were only less than 5,000 undergraduates in the whole school. More than 10% of the campus was sitting in that class. He would simply say, after we had read All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren or The Fall by Camus or Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller, he would say, here's what this story is presenting. And here's why I think it's being presented. And then he would say, as a Presbyterian minister, here's what I've learned. And then he would say, and as a, pres- as a Christian, here are questions I would like to ask Arthur Miller. And we would go back into the dorms and spend literally half the night exploring the meaning of life. Hmm. Those stories were rich enough that they caused us to examine our own stories and in the process to be open to the spirit's story speaking in and through us. Film combines music and image. Visual art can do the same thing, can't it? A, a painting can arrest your attention. It, it can cause you to see something in a new way. And in that present possibility allows the spirit to to speak to you. The arts in that way are a particularly, not the only way. It can happen on a march for justice. It can happen the birth of your child. It can happen in taking a shower. It can happen in all of life. But the arts have a a unique place by arresting your normal perceptions and offering you a new perception that allows you at times to hear the spirit in a, in a unique, new, perhaps even startling way. 
So film and theology, film and general revelation is your specialty. You've written several books on that, and um, I'll have links for those below. Um, so tell us, what is, what's at the, the center, what's the core of film as it relates to general revelation? Well, film, I think the artist uh, Van der Leo and his, his book on uh, art and beauty recognize that some arts have a combination of the senses that they trigger. It's not just music, it's not just visual, it's not just words, like an opera. It's that combination of storytelling that film allows us to experience. Um, Sometimes I've been criticized for saying you should start with film and then move to theology. And critics have said, you can't. You can't jump out of your skin. We all know that. That's absolutely true. But again, to use an analogy, sometimes when I was, my kids were young, I would come home from a busy day teaching. I was an administrator, a dean. My head was filled with stuff. My six or eight-year-old daughter would try to share something with me. And my mind was someplace else. And I would maybe think I knew what she was talking about, and I would respond maybe even too quickly. And Liz would say to me, Dad, you're not listening. Wow. And what would I do? I would drop what I was doing. I would stop thinking about the office and I would give my attention to my daughter who wanted to tell me some story about her life. And without exception, I heard something different when I first listened and then responded. And we're capable of doing that. So I want to say Theologically, God wants me to first listen, look, receive. That's actually three words from C.S. Lewis, who says, if you don't start with that, you'll never know whether the art had anything to present to you or not, because it'll be stillborn. So you first get yourself out of the way. And what a film does is it invites you to do that. When you go to a theater, pay your money, get your popcorn. If it's a bad movie, you're mad. You, 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 you feel that you have been taken advantage of. Why? Because you came wanting to give yourself to that story. And the story didn't deserve it. But a film has that possibility of opening your spirit to the spirit of God, or at least opening your spirit to life. So that, you know, over the last 20 years, when I, 
25 years, and I've been teaching theology and film classes. I've had my students, so we're maybe talking about a thousand students. I've had my students write a two or three page paper on the movie that was most spiritually significant to them and why. Now, there's a few who say it, it was this because it illustrated a theological truth I already knew. Those are the more hardcore rationalists. But I would say two-thirds are able to say, I don't know if it was God, but my spirit was radically transformed when I saw Toy Story 3. And I was a different person and able to enter into my marriage and go through that transition in life because of that movie. And others will say, as with me, when I saw Beckett, I was called into ministry. I'll say, I heard God say to me, you don't have to be holy. You only have to be obedient, and I will help make you holy. Hmm. Exactly what happened with Thomas Beckett in that great classic movie, where he's the drinking buddy of King Henry, and King Henry thinks that if he's appointed, if he appoints him archbishop, he can now control the church. Only for Thomas to say, if God has appointed me archbishop, I must serve God and not the king. And he's murdered on the steps of the cathedral. I didn't want to be murdered. But, but I heard God say to me, you don't have to be holy. I'm calling you to ministry. I will help you all you need to do is be obedient. That came through watching a movie. And that that happens, hundreds of my students can give movies where that happened. And they're not the same movie. Not all of them are great movies. Some of them are pretty tacky. Some of them are children's movies. Some of them are great classic movies, Shawshank Redemption or something. So it's a range. But film has that possibility of allowing you as spectator to open up your spirit to receive something new. And that is a potential occasion, not only for discovery, but for revelation. Um, And that's what I try to teach. And that's what my students, in a sense, it's really helping them understand what they've already experienced. It's teaching them to recognize and maybe have better skill at unpacking just as you're a musician. Um, If you teach some rudimentary understanding of music, it actually helps a person better listen to the music. Um, And that in a similar way, some of us need help in knowing how to receive a story. Um, Some of us only go to a movie for escape, for an adrenaline rush. Um, That's fine. All of us need escape once in a while. But we're leaving behind wonderful opportunities for something more as we 
get to know other spirits, meaning other people in their situation, in their stories, and the spirit who speaks in and through life. Yeah, I've certainly experienced many movies as been very inspiring, a call to action, call to ministry, call to go deeper. So they've been very powerful for me for for decades. And I think that's probably pretty common for people that have ears to hear that or eyes to see. So what can you say about um, what you mentioned a little bit before, but what do your critics think you are getting wrong in your whole approach to general revelation, and what is your response to them? Usually it has to do with my um, beginning with or recognizing the independent um, reality or of revelation outside the church and without reference to salvation or Jesus. So they want me to begin with uh, special revelation or, for example, which I think is actually a faulty interpretation, they'll go to Psalm 19 and they'll say 1 to 6 is just a setup and it's meant to be the inadequate start and what really that psalm is about is the Torah that's sweeter than honeycomb. So that there, there's, an, there's an attempt to relativize general revelation, usually because of the fear that somehow it will supplant the redemptive center of special revelation. And that's what hopefully people understand when they interact with me more, they read more. Um, that 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 is not my agenda at all. Um, this is not to take the place of, but this is to recognize the importance of this alternate form of knowing God, which people throughout the world experience, and which we um, neglect. Uh, to our peril, and to the church's impoverishment. And obviously some people don't agree with me. So that's where the debate happens. So whether that debate is whether there's any value in other religions or whether that debate is in um, giving too much credit to the arts um, or whether that debate is in not starting with your doctrine, um, you know, some some combination of one of those. Um, but if they'd listen, uh, in terms of students, uh, and maybe there's a certain self-selectivity that goes on, so maybe I, not a full cross-section of the student body takes my classes, but they've been very popular, and I get a large number of students. Um most of the students, when they have a chance to reflect, recognize that this is this is also part of evangelical theology. This is part of orthodox theology. This is part of mere Christianity. This is not radical, though a theology of everyday life 
has been unfortunately neglected. It seems to me this is just core to the liberal conservative divide within the church is that the conservatives will err on the side of only emphasizing special revelation then the liberals will easily fall off and forget the core doctrines of the church and and become like the world. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, and and that tragedy, uh, the tragedy is being repeated now in some of the culture wars today, is one of the things that's handicapped the church so that the conservative church for years wanted to say social justice is important, but not as important as evangelism. Well, for the last 50 years, there's been a slow recognition that that's really a faulty thing to say, right. that the, that words and the cup of cold water go together and that they're equally important. They, the one doesn't supplant the other. They're both equally. They're, 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 they both need to be there. I think what's going on now is a similar thing is beginning to happen with regard to beauty and that um, general revelation through the arts is increasingly being recognized as important in people's lives. And so um, whether they take every nuance of what I've said I, I think there's a a general, at least partial recognition that, yes, this is something we need to give more attention to. So um, I've heard you talk before about the transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful, and how we've moved from different epistemological phases. Um, so starting with truth to goodness to beauty, then goodness to truth to beauty, and now beauty to goodness to truth. So if you, I mean, I I hadn't heard it put like that before, and I thought, this is really fascinating to me. So if you could talk more about that and give us an idea of when and how how these phases took place. This this is at a meta level. So, you know, don't don't, look at it as 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 a larger pattern that might be informative as opposed to trying to pick it apart. Right, right. We can say, and if you look at books, certainly that's where it was, that in the 60s, we were concerned as a culture and as a church with issues of truth. And that goodness came secondly, and that beauty was there, but was an afterthought. And we're talking about how we know things. We're not talking about a, a yeah, hierarchy of values. Right, right, but also just in terms of how, what you might try to center on, what, right. where, where you focus your attention. So we might, uh, I, I, again, in the 60s, not everybody was there. We were beginning to recognize some of our sexism. But, but beauty was a feminine trait, and masculine traits were dominant. By the 80s, we had, we, we began to see the moral shallowness of some of our truth leaders. 
right. Jimmy Baker, Catholic clergy. That's that's when I, I was dean at the time. I was well aware that that period in the late seventies, early eighties is 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 when churches began to realize that those truth tellers that they put on pedestals uh, had hollow legs or worse. And that we also, as youth groups, began to take mission trips to build orphanages. Um, we, you know, in, in, in lots of ways, you can begin to illustrate. We actually said, if goodness is not there, we don't want to listen to truth. And then there was beauty. But by the year 2000, we began to recognize that beauty was the cutting edge in our world culture. The Pope said, it's the artist who will attract the youth in the next generation. We began to buy Dyson vacuum cleaners. They were more expensive. We began to buy Apple computers. And part of the reason we bought it was they were cool looking. Beauty actually became something you could put a price tag on. And that has increased. So that today, and and there are books from some of the old timers, you know, what happened to truth? Today, we would probably begin with beauty, then go to goodness, and then go to truth. Now, all three are transcendentals. All three are the gift of the spirit. All three are necessary all the time. It's not a question of doing away with one. But it is perhaps a question of saying, where, on what syllable do we put our emphasis? Mm-hmm. And the church oftentimes is still giving their emphasis to the 1960s or at best the 1980s when we're in 2020. Hmm. And the general revelation might be part of the theological underpinnings for recognizing um, the value or the possibilities of moving in a different direction. That's one of the reasons that I think the worship services that have 25 minutes of worship and then a 35-minute lecture appeal to some people, but appeal much less to the under 30. And the reason is they're looking for a liturgical experience, even if it's informal, that's whole and beautiful. So that they're not leading with truth. Anyway. So that but but that's that's suggestive. That's metaphor. I don't when they're obviously people in all ways, and, and it's much messier than that. But if you're going to make generalizations, I, I think 
we something to it. Yeah. Watcher, watcher, we could say something like that is going on. All right. So finally, uh, let's take a look at application. How both how can we encourage people, train people, discipleship people into being more aware of God's general revelation? So they're looking to hear from God in movies or literature, in day to day life, in any experience. And on the other hand, how how can general revelation um, be part of the church's mission? How can it help us in evangelism or working for justice or, or whatever the church is involved in? Yeah. And, you know, I, I said earlier, my own sense is that the value of general revelation has to do with both discipleship, deepening our own spiritual foundations, deepening our personal relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. That's that pneumatology. And it has to do with um, taking seriously the stories of others so that they'll take seriously our story in terms of our witness and our evangelism. So that's the reason for taking general revelation seriously. It's twofold, and in my humble opinion, it's crucial. The question then of how do we do that? There are any number of ways, Um, but part of it is for the church to recognize that the spirit might be there and to name it and to affirm it. Um, I've had a movie discussion group that meets once a month And we see a movie and then we have a meal in the style of the movie. And we talk about the movie over the meal. And the movie becomes a dialogue partner. And because it's vulnerable, it invites our being vulnerable. And the discussion goes deep. Um, But whether that's music or film or fine art, whether that's feeding the homeless and reflecting on how that experience of of being one with those people becomes an encounter with Jesus, as he says in Matthew. Um, There's any number of ways. So rather than trying to compartmentalize our life into Sunday worship and then six days of witness. We, we need to encourage our, ourselves and our friends and for clergy, our parishioners, to look for God in all of life. I think a theology of everyday life that includes general revelation um, and is something that uh, speaks to the needs of present-day reality, uh, speaks to uh, the ambiguity of life, speaks to um, the anti-institutional nature of some of the thinking of anybody under 35. Speak, it, it connects to where people are. And 
that's absolutely crucial if the church is going to thrive. Excellent. Okay. Very good words. Very encouraging to hear. All right. I'm Dennis Messler, and you've been watching The Charge. We've been with Dr. Robert K. Johnston, professor of theology and culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. Dr. Johnston, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. All right. Peace to everyone.